A union town, all down the line, this is a union town. This is President Ron Herrera, and you are listening to Welcome to Uniontown, a podcast that delves into the everyday issues, iconic leaders, and allies of the labor movement. We get to know the backstories of workers and the journey of leaders, from their first job to their greatest victory. The show covers every aspect of the Los Angeles labor movement, from the desert to the sea. This is Hugo Romero, and you're listening to Welcome to Uniontown with my co-host, President Ron Herrera. Today, we welcome to Uniontown United States Senator Alex Padilla. He is the proud son of Mexican immigrants, his father a short-order cook, and his mother a housekeeper. Alex attended Los Angeles Public Schools and is a graduate of MIT, where he studied mechanical engineering. After graduating from MIT, Senator Padilla was elected to the Los Angeles City Council, where he served as the youngest council president in Los Angeles history. He passed more than 70 bills and then went on to serve as California's first Latino Secretary of State. In December 2020, Alex was appointed by Governor Gavin Newsom to finish the term of Vice President Kamala Harris and became the first U.S. Senator from the great state of California. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Senator. Welcome to Uniontown, the podcast out of the Federation. I'm here with my co-host, who you know, my brother Hugo Romero, who's the political coordinator at the Federation. But it's great to have you on. Welcome, Senator. We're we're very thrilled. We hope you're... uh... You're staying warm and not missing uh, California's warm weather too much. It's been snowing in D.C. I hope you're adjusting <laughs> well over there. <laughs> well, good to be with you, even though it's virtual, Brother Ron, Brother Ugo. It's, uh, uh, yes, it is a little bit colder in Washington, D.C. than it is in California, but uh, it comes with the territory. Happy to put on an extra sweater if that's what it takes to uh, do good work for uh, working families across the country here in the nation's capital. Just so our listeners know here in Los Angeles, it's uh, tough for me to say senator, not because I'm not respectful, because that I am. The senator and I are friends, and we call each other by our first names. So it's probably a little strange for him to call me President Herrera as well as me saying Senator Padilla. So you know what? Uh, I'm used to having breakfasts at little hole in the walls and in East LA, Alex, and uh, I want this podcast to be that type of a, a conversation. I want it to be just, you know, friends talking to one another. And you know that both of us cherish the times that we do go and have breakfast. And we order the same thing, by the way. You always get the chilequiles and I get the green chili with eggs on top. So I bet you uh, when I go to D.C. to see you, it's going to be tough for us to equal that 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 menu, but we're gonna we're gonna try for sure. See, I think it's important to delve into who you really are, where you came from, you know, your neighborhood, your your parents, who created just a a person that that we all look up to and that are very very proud of. The first question is, how was it? I I saw the announcement you with the governor Newsom and. You got pretty emotional. What what was going through your mind that day? Oh my gosh! You know, it was a. Uh, I now call it the the Zoom scene around the world because I've gotten so many you know calls and text messages and comments from people that I know, even a lot of people that I don't know about that Zoom. You know, and uh, people even asking me, "Well, come on, you should have known, right? Weren't you expecting it? Was it really a surprise?" 
you know, serving in the United States Senate was uh, was more than just an idea I've had for a long time. As you know, Ron, I've been in public service for more than 20 years, from my days on city council, where we did good work together, my days in the state Senate as Secretary of State, you know, hoping for an opportunity like this someday. And as much as you think about it, as much as you work towards it, when it's finally happening, something like this, you know, I couldn't help but uh, immediately think of my parents, like you said, and uh, it's not just sort of a, my life experience and journey, but for me, it always begins with my parents, proud immigrants from Mexico that uh, came, like so many families, in pursuit of the American dream. If you keep watch the, towards the end of that Zoom, I do talk about, uh, you know, my dad. For 40 years, he worked as a short order cook. He's now a retiree of Unite Here Local 11. I can't count how many pancakes he scrambled or pancakes he flipped trying to put food on the table and keep a roof over our heads. For the same 40 years, my dad worked as a cook. My mom worked uh, cleaning houses for a number of families, primarily in the San Fernando Valley. Just to think that, you know, as immigrants, they came here uh, with limited educational opportunity, but big dreams and a work ethic. And in one generation, had three kids, having my, my sister, who's the oldest, she works in education. She's been a TA, a teacher, a principal, uh, in LA Unified. My younger brother, who you know, Ron, works for the city council, for council president, Nuri Martinez. So we're all in public service. Uh, I'm just the one that's in the news a little bit more often. And it's all because of them, their hard work and, and the values they instilled in us, you know, get a good education and do what you can to help others. So that all came rushing back to both my mind and my heart. And that emotion was clearly evident uh, in that Zoom that you're talking about. We completely agree. And you, you know what else was evident, Senator, and something I've I've noticed throughout the times I've met you and, and followed is, is the humility which would, and grace with which you accepted and took in the news. In fact, I was sharing with Ron that many, many years ago, actually, I was volunteering at an event that you attended, and I was staffing the P through Z, I think, portion of the registration table. And you came in, I, I had no idea who you were. I was uh, much younger back then. And, you know, you come up, I, I say, uh, name, Padilla, uh, first name, Alex. Uh, I don't I don't see you here. And you're like, hmm, I, I thought I was registered. And someone rushes and is like, state senator, Padilla. You know? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, I stopped on it. <laughs> but you know, it stood out, and it stands out even more as the years progress because most people, one, they don't bother, a lot of folks don't bother to even check in. And two, you were you just took it as, you know, normal person, didn't make much of your title, that you had your history in the LA City Council at that point, uh, council president. And you're just such a humble guy, and that's con- that's continued throughout your career. I want to build yeah. on Ron's question on your background, specifically on the Valley. I'm actually wearing my uh, Mike Garcia, former president of uh, Janitors Union shirt today, who I think is... Uh, here with us in spirit, who also was from the Valley and who in 2016, during a lunch I was having with him, mentioned, you know, I, Alex Padilla, I think he's going to be U.S. Senator one day, uh, as shortly before his passing. And he also mentioned, just so you know, there's that expectations, he, he thought you'd be president one day as well afterwards. But he, he was a big fan of the Valley, and I, you ride pretty hard for the Valley as well, and I, I hope you can touch on it because, as you know, people like to poke fun at the Valley, and I want you to share some of uh, your experiences and what makes the San Fernando Valley special. 
Yeah, no, uh, glad you asked that question because uh, look, proud to represent the 818. Uh, <laughs> born at Kaiser Hospital in Panorama City and, and at Kaiser for a reason because of you know good union contract that uh, my dad enjoyed for for many years and raised in the community of Pacoima, right? Actually, we lived in North Hollywood when I was first born. My parents bought uh, the home we were raised in as my brother was uh, born. So, you know, needed a little bit more elbow room to put some nickels together for a down payment. And I was raised in Pacoima. And everywhere I've gone, throughout the city, throughout the state, and now throughout the country, I ask people, have you ever seen the movie La Bamba? Right. You remember Richie Valens, and most people do. And so I said, well, then you know where I grew up, uh, the Northeast San Fernando Valley, hardworking community of Pacoima, California. So uh, a little bit different, uh, right? Uh, proud Latino, but not from uh, the East Side, respectfully. You know, a lot of pride mm-hmm. in Boyle Heights, other communities on the East Side. But in the Valley, it was a little bit different. I think uh, when I was growing up, the, the immediate community was primarily Latino, significant African-American presence, but the Valley as a whole, by and large, not nearly as diverse as it is today. You know, I, I also flash forward to my early days in uh, in politics, not just when I was elected to the city council, but for years before then, when there was a whole movement afoot as to whether the Valley should uh, secede from the rest of the city of Los Angeles and become its own city. And even that movement was sort of on the heels of Proposition 187. So, you know, for all the people who see the, the Valley as sort of the stepchild of Los Angeles, even though it's officially part of the city, you know, growing up there, you, you kind of felt that uh, on a multiple levels from people on the west side, some people from downtown, downtown, uh, but even in the Valley, clear distinction between east and west. So, you know, coming from the, the, the scrappy communities in the northeast San Fernando Valley, I think gives us that uh, that hunger, that edge on top of what our parents instilled in us, right? You know, you got to work hard to make it in this country. You have great opportunities if you're willing to put in the work, you know, put in the effort, do things the right way. So uh, it did do a lot to, to make me who I am today. The work ethic, the value system. You know, I'll, I'll always uh, keep my feet on the ground because of those roots. My brother lives just a couple miles from the house we grew up in. My sister the same. And me, maybe five miles at the most. <laughs> uh, my wife is from the Valley, too. So we, we bleed the Valley through and through and, and proud to, to represent home. You know, um, Alex, the pandemic has peeled back the onion. It is showcased, unfortunately, but maybe fortunately, the need in the Latino communities. Heart is hit, infection rates, high death toll as a result of it. For our young union members out there, what would you say to them about your upbringing and your father being a union member and what that did, just specifically the union side of it and how, you know, understanding him as a union member and what he did for a living, uh, how do we inspire uh, young people to get into the fight and both in their union and in their community? Yeah, no, pre- appreciate the question, Ron, because uh, my dad's experience plays a big part in why I have chosen to not just get into public service, but stay in public service and you know prioritize the issues that uh, I fight so hard for. Uh, and it's best described with this story. You know, as I mentioned, growing up, my dad was a member of uh, Unite Here Local 11 for many years. But I remember the day when I was in high school that the restaurant he worked for went non-union. 
like so many people, right? It's uh, the first thing that goes is the health benefits. You know, it wasn't as easy to see a doctor if you were sick. So don't get sick is what we were told. Mm-hmm. You know, then I'm off to college, you know, working my way through college, you know, taking out student loans and applying for financial aid and, you know, talking to my uh, parents as often as I could. And, you know, you hear stories of, uh, you know, in, instead of 40 hours a week, it's maybe down to 37 or 35 hours a week. And then a couple of years later, it's, not talking about a 15 cent an hour wage increase. You're talking about, you know, they're shaving 10 cents an hour. And I was fresh home from college, maybe a little bit after I returned from college, when after about 35 years of working for the same restaurant company, from one day to the next, my dad was just laid off. You know, I still see the look in his eye when he came home, shared the news with the family. And without saying it, I knew exactly what he was feeling, right? He, uh, he no longer had the dignity to provide for our family in the way that he took pride in and to see that uh, the pain in his face, no parents, father, mother, no parents should ever have to experience that, right? That's not the American dream that we were raised with. We're taught that if you work hard and play by the rules, you know, you can uh, get ahead and uh, do better for your family and the next generation will have it even better. And uh, he was stripped of that. And so, uh, you know, thankfully, he ended up uh, bouncing around a couple of other restaurants for a few years before he uh, settled into Patty's in Toluca Lake, which, you know, he worked at for several years and he could finally retire on his own terms. You know, so for young people today wondering what the labor movement means or doesn't mean, you know, yeah, there's the Hollywood movies and the real stories of, you know, workers organizing to form a union. But far too often what the stories you don't hear about is, you know, how that benefit of a good union contract is slipping away for so many people, especially in the private sector. You know, it's uh, the, the labor movement that has built the middle class in America throughout the course of our history. And we've got to fight to keep that uh, right to organize going. And uh, if you think there's a disconnect between things like labor rights and the COVID-19 pandemic, you got another thing coming uh, because what the coronavirus has done, it's exposed two pandemics. Yes, it's uh, the virus itself, and we've seen the disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color and working families. You know, COVID doesn't discriminate every state, every community, everybody's been touched, but communities of color and working class families have been hit hardest. It's exposed a lot of the other underlying inequities that we have in our society. You know, who's disproportionately essential workers? Who disproportionately has access to health care uh, or not? You know, who disproportionately has the underlying conditions that makes getting COVID even more harmful or fatal versus other people? It's not a coincidence. It's the same working class communities that uh, are disproportionately impacted by the severity of all these social ills and COVID is no different. So the way around it, long term, is to organize, 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 not just for protections in the workplace, but for access to, to health care, better paying jobs, so we can not just provide for our families, but to, to take care of our families and take care of our health. Those are basic human rights. So uh, that's, for me, the, the big connect. You know, if you're a young person, you know, with these kinds of questions, you know, maybe you haven't lived it, maybe you haven't, you know, lived the struggle that sometimes is the harsh way of learning it. But let's let's do some homework, let's read some history, uh, and realize that uh, the labor movement is probably more important today than it's been in, in decades. 
Couldn't agree with you more, Senator, on that. In fact, you touched the soft spot for me when you were talking about your dad. You know, I, I was undocumented up until a few year, a couple years ago. My dad is still undocumented. Uh, my mom was deported. So I come from an immigrant family. And at the height of the recession, as you can imagine, every time there's a national crisis, uh, undocumented and communities of color get hit hard, hardest the most, as you mentioned. And I remember the, the day where we had exhausted all our uh, electricity bills, extensions, and we were both sitting in the dark. And I saw that same sorrow and stress in my dad's face 10, 11 years ago. Uh, we were both sitting in the dark. We had no electricity. We couldn't pay it. And it, it, you really touched the soft spot with me in sharing your father's story. You know, we see the struggles continue today, and I think that feels my passion and Iran's passion and, and knowing that those struggles are prominent in communities of color and low-income uh, families and individuals today with, with this COVID crisis. You and your colleagues released an immigration bill. wondered if you could touch on it and some of the highlights of what you all hope to achieve. Yeah, it's a, you know, a huge priority for me, thankfully for a lot of us in uh, you know, immigration reform is long overdue. I think people on both sides of the aisle would agree that uh, our immigration system it is is in many many ways broken, and we recognize not just people that uh, you know maybe trying to come to the United States today in pursuit of the American dream, many fleeing either horrible economic conditions and lack of hope in their hometowns, in their home countries, uh, or fleeing violence, literally fleeing for their lives. If, if you've seen, especially throughout Latin America, but not just there, in Asia, Africa, you know, really around the world, you know, people fleeing for their very lives, coming, seeking refuge in the United States of America. And the last four years has been anything but humane in, in receiving and treating refugees and asylum seekers. So one of my priorities, like I said, is, is to do my part to achieve uh, the immigration reform that we've long needed. It is about restoring the asylum system in a way that's humane and respectful, not like the last four years. It means how do we take care of dreamers, right? The whole world, I think, or the whole country, I should say, both sides of the aisle, I think, respect the plight of dreamers, young people who are brought here by their parents, uh, they had no choice. You know, if you're a little baby, if you're two, four years old, you know, you, you go where your parents take you. But they were born, raised here, went to school here, you know, are working here in many circumstances. They're American in every way, shape, or form, except for a piece of paper. Uh, and to live with the uncertainty of whether or not you're going to be deported from one day to the next is just flat out an injustice. The many, many people throughout the Southland, throughout California, and the country that have been benefiting from TPS protections because they've fled, you know, war-torn countries at critical times over the last few decades. On and on and on. There's so many categories of immigrants, both documented and undocumented, that are a big part of keeping the economy going. Right? There's an estimated 11 million undocumented throughout the country. California, home to the biggest number of them. And here's a special point that we're making repeatedly in, in trying to make the case for immigration reform. It, it was the right moral thing to do and the smart economic thing to do before the pandemic. But let's just talk about the last 11 months. You know, we if I had a nickel for every Facebook post, for every tweet I have seen paying respect to essential workers, Right, the workers working on the front lines and run, you know, the, the, the labor fed represents a whole lot of them. 
in healthcare settings, hospitals, clinics, you know, farm workers, uh, grocery store workers, uh, so many categories of formally designated essential workers by the federal uh, and state government, more than 5 million of them across the country are undocumented. My God, if they haven't earned security and a pathway to citizenship for putting themselves on the front lines during this pandemic, you know, to keep the food supply going, to keep the economy going, to keep, you know, healthcare and the vaccine distribution going, you know, I don't know what else it'll take. So there's, I think, a growing momentum for uh, the common sense of it all. And I'm just hoping and praying that uh, because we have a Democratic majority in the Senate, not a big majority, but a majority nonetheless, a majority in the House, and Joe Biden in the White House, that maybe the stars are, line, are aligned to finally get things done. It's, it's been talked about uh, for many years under various presidential administrations, both Democrat and Republican, uh, and there's always you know a star that's not aligned and therefore hasn't gotten done. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, this year uh, is the year that we do get it done. With your with your family background, Alex, and it's not touted enough, your union background, your union foundation, right, your union roots, it's very important right now. In the horizon, uh, union organizing and a push to unionize documented as well as undocumented workers. Uh, it's very, very important because wages, benefits, and working conditions still is the priority for the labor movement. But your thoughts on the PRO Act, uh, within that PRO Act is a component on misclassification, and you've been sympathetic with the Teamsters, in particular at the ports, and have sympathized around uh, the abuses that go on with uh, misclassified uh, port truck drivers. What's your uh, thought on the PRO Act? You know, again, we, we can get real technical, real quick, right, deep in policy weeds and legal language. But it's always important to remind ourselves of, like, really, what, what, what are we talking about here? What's the value principle that's being discussed? And again, it kind of goes back to the American dream concept that we've all talked about, whether you're a, a child of immigrants or your family's been here for generation after generation. You know, the principle that if you, if you work hard, if you work 40 hours a week, you should not live in poverty. Right? It's really that simple. But so much of the economic uh, structures and the fiscal incentives and disincentives on corporate America have resulted in uh, you know, hardworking people finding it harder and harder to make ends meet, let alone keep that roof over the family's head and food on the table like so many of us were blessed to have growing up. You know, we've seen it both directly, right, the, the uh, misclassification of employees of a company as independent contractors, you know, companies that think they can get away with that and shed either, you know, tax payments or having to cover benefits or, you know, pay into a social security or a pension or something. And they're going to do that for their bottom line at every turn. That's what their accountants tell them to do. That's what their lawyers tell them to do. You know, but who does that end up hurting in the long run? It's, it's working families. You know, I've also seen in, in other categories, if it's not the uh, uh, employer directly, uh, the use and abuse of uh, you know, contractors and subcontractors, right, to try to create a, a barrier uh, of uh, responsibility and accountability between the worker and the, uh, uh, the responsible company. You know, we've, one of the examples I've given is, uh, let's think of uh, 
airport security. You know, before 9-11, I know it's been about 20 years now, uh, but before 9-11, you know, a lot of airports, a lot of airlines would just contract out that work. And uh, it was people working for close to minimum wage. You know, Mike Garcia was one of the ones organizing uh, and representing those workers once upon a time. Post 9-11, all of a sudden, there's a federal agency we now know as TSA because we recognize how important that work is. And it shouldn't take an incident like 9-11 to identify a category of workers and make sure that they're uh, trained properly, paid and compensated properly uh, to do important jobs. And there's examples of that across sectors in agriculture and travel and tourism and construction, transportation logistics, Ron, you mentioned the, the drivers at the port, on and on and on. But uh, I always like to start these policy discussions and debates with what's the value principle. And again, it comes back to the American dream, fairness and justice over and over again. We see your uh, union background in that response center. I think you nailed it with the whys and, and given those perspectives. In fact, you know, run touched on your union background, but so much so that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you worked at the Fed and you used to have my office. So I think you walked by my office and you know, this used to be my office. Can you share about your time at the, at the Federation? Sure, sure. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, God puts us in, in certain places at certain times for certain reasons. They're not always immediately apparent to us, right? That's uh, my belief in, in my reflection. So uh, when I was transitioning out of my engineering career, right, leaving my mechanical engineering degree behind and trying to figure out what I wanted to do in the year uh, 1994, I was an intern at the uh, County Federation of Labor. I was going through the Coro Fellowship Program. It's a leadership public affairs program. And uh, my labor assignment, right? We, uh, in that program, I did a month in the private sector, the month in the public sector, a month at a nonprofit, a month in a media organization, et cetera. But my labor assignment was the County Fed. Remember coming in the first day of my, my internship, uh, they put me in your office uh, and I was waiting, waiting, waiting for instructions, what, you know, what work they wanted <laughs> me to do. A couple minutes later, uh, this uh, gentleman by the name of Miguel Contreras walks in. For those of you who know Miguel Contreras, this was not his first day as the secretary treasurer of the Fed. It was his first day as the political director of the Fed. It was uh, Monday after the November 1994 election. Oh, wow. And uh, he threw the newspaper at me, basically. And he <laughs> said, hey, I heard you went to MIT. I need, I need a chart. You know, I want to see congressional district by congressional district. Senate district by Senate district, assembly district by assembly district, who won last Tuesday, who lost last Tuesday, by how many votes, you know, give me voter registration in each of the districts, and who's in their first term, their second term, their third term. And so I went, you know, went to work, you know, putting a couple of tables and charts together for him. And I realized later that was the beginning of the political plan for the 1996 cycle, right? We had just uh, come off the 1994 election. He was already thinking ahead, but being very tactical about it. So, you know, a lot to uh, learn about the labor movement, labor law, labor protections, organizing campaigns, et cetera. But the political activity of uh, the labor fed and, you know, the AFL-CIO at large is uh, hugely, hugely important. Again, fighting for that economic opportunity, justice for working families and, you know, building the middle class. It's, uh, yeah, it starts at the grassroots. Alex, uh, for this show, but, you know, for your public persona, it's very important to me as your friend, long, long, long time friend, to expose the, you know, 
the union side of you and the labor side of you. And the, I, I liked what you said about live the struggle. And that's very, very important. In fact, I'm, you're going to be hearing me say that. But you know that Mike Garcia and I were the best of friends. Our, you know, philosophies kind of, you know, paralleled Mike with uh, local 1877 as we knew it, right, uh, in SEIU, now USWW, and me and the Teamsters. At that time, we saw something in you. It's the position that you're in now. But it started from you being the youngest city council president, but union, the youngest city council men. Back in those days, what policy did you think was the strongest policy that you had to deal with where you had to decide you know, hey, I'm siding with union members. You know, this is going to help families. This is going to uplift workers possibly into the middle class or make their lives better because of the experience that you saw in your own home. What was that one policy you can uh, look back on? Oh, man, there's a, there's a number of examples. Uh, I'll get to what I think is the the biggest, best answer or example in a minute, you know, on the city council, a lot of examples with a lot of the city employee unions, right? Uh, Especially when I became council president, you know, I made it a point to uh, reach out to the leaders at the time in SEIU and ask me, the firefighters, even the police union, like, let's just stay in close contact, easier to resolve issues and contracts, you know, if we're talking regularly than waiting for issues to become big problems and big headaches, right? Because then people are usually dug in and it, it's harder to resolve. And uh, and I think it served us well. IBW is another one. You know, public sector, I wouldn't say that it's easy, but it's a little easier than, uh, you know, organizing and building union strength in, in the private sector. And so I think that's really the example I want to point to. There was a time period in uh, the mid-2000s where through grocery uh, store consolidations, you know, and again, a lot of corporations driven by the bottom line, the bottom line, if they can save a nickel on the back of working uh, of their employees, uh, they're going to try to do it. And we saw certain companies changing ownership, certain stores that were shut down maybe for a week and just lay off all their workers and then start hiring new workers back, you know, at lesser wages, uh, lesser benefits, if any, that sort of thing. So working with UFCW, we introduced, it was novel at the time, nobody had ever done it before, but a grocery worker retention ordinance. And not just because we were you know, concerned about employees and their labor rights, but specifically making a compelling argument about the health and safety of retaining experienced trained grocery workers, even when grocery stores change management or change ownership. You know, people realize the connection between the, the food you put in your mouth and, and your health and your physiology. And so uh, we passed in Los Angeles the Grocery Worker Retention Ordinance, the first in the state, the first in the nation. It was immediately challenged by uh, uh, the industry, not just at the local level, but all the way to the state Supreme Court. It took years and years and years. 
and it was upheld. You know, by the time it was upheld by the state Supreme Court, uh, I was already in the state legislature. Uh, I think it's been a model, not just other uh, jurisdictions across the state to adopt similar ordinances and protections for grocery workers, but as a model for other industries. I think we've seen, for example, again, the, the union that my dad's a retiree of, Unite Here, they're trying to advance similar protections in the uh, hospitality industry for hotel workers and others. So uh, if I look back to my early, early uh, labor days, I think that'd be uh, the, the biggest example I can point to. That legacy carries on today. In fact, uh, just this year, they're, the Federation under Ron's leadership were moving similar policy built on that legacy. You know, you've built this long career, you know, labor background, MIT grad, mechanical engineering, secretary of state, LA city council president, different pockets of leadership styles and, and hard and soft skills. You're now one of a uh, hundred U.S. senators. And, you know, if I'm being biased, 50 of them don't think the sky is blue. But yet you need their support to pass substantive policy and, and legislation. What's your approach and, and what are some of those California lessons and skills that you're going to take in trying to work with Republicans in moving stuff forward when nowadays the political climate is such that you just can't agree on just basic facts, let alone what policy to pass and, and what votes, which is something, of course, you have experience with and, and build those relationships. And I know that's something you're going to do over the course of your time in Congress. But how are you going to approach uh, building those allyships and relationships to move policy forward? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question because I'm, uh, you know, allies right away. You know, we got we got to figure this out. How uh, with with a fifty fifty split, there's got to be a way of, uh, you know, talking to some of our colleagues from across the aisle, as difficult as it may be at times, given politics and personalities, to win over support. You know, I was able to do that when I was on city council. I know uh, uh, Los Angeles has been a, a sort of a democratic city for a long time, a labor town, more and more each day. But even when I was there, a couple of Republicans that I served with that, uh, you know, we, we brought them along to get things done. When I was in the state Senate, Democratic majorities, but not nearly as large as they are today. You, even back then, you needed a two-thirds vote to pass the annual budget, uh, we were constantly trying to reach uh, some Republican members to come along. The last six years prior to my appointment to the Senate, I served as Secretary of State and had to work with both Democratic and Republican secretaries across the country to ensure the accessibility, security of our elections, especially in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic. So working with Republicans is nothing new, but I think the stakes are clearly higher, not just because it's the U.S. Senate, but the, the political times we're living in, you know, the, the nature of politics right now. But here's what, what uh, why I'm hopeful. You know, when people ask me what, what job I've enjoyed the most, was it the, the city, was it the state, is it this? You know, I reflect on all of them. They're all different, but it, at the essence of it all, it's about ideas and relationships, Right. What ideas do we have to help improve people's lives? And do we have the relationships to advance those ideas? In this case, it's how do we line up the votes? You know, so it's, you know, as much as I've been uh, saying hello and getting to know my Democratic colleagues one by one by one, starting to reach out and have conversations with our Republican colleagues. Look, you can't give up hope, man. If, if, if uh, you're a pessimist, this is the wrong business to be in. You always got to be optimistic that progress is achievable if you're willing to put in the work. 
as I've met some of my Republican colleagues, trying to find those uh, areas of common ground, common interest. You know, maybe it's just an appreciation for baseball uh, or something like that. Come to learn that there's two other senators that are former state secretaries of state, Sherrod Brown from Ohio. And so he's going to be a great ally on some election stuff. Uh, but Roy Blunt from Missouri, probably a lot that we don't agree on. But if I can appeal to Roy Blunt on some of that Secretary of State experience, it's at least an opening, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, trying to find those uh, little tidbits is what we have to do over and over and over again. And uh, hopefully the stars align at the right time when it comes to policy to uh, be able to get things done. We're getting close to our time here. And then, you know, just in closing, just remember this question. What do you want to be known for? <laughs> you know, may, may, maybe the answer to the last part is uh, exactly what you just said. You know, I've had uh, tremendous opportunities and, and titles over the course of my life, but you know, if, if at the end of the day, I'm just known for he was a good person, he tried to help people. That's it. You know, and if you can point to a couple specific examples of why uh, you know families are in a better place and the world's in a better place because of some of the work I've done, that's you know, to me, that's what this is all about. I think about it every day, you know, why it's important to keep my feet on the ground. So much of what you're asking about goes back to my parents and the way we were brought up. You know, my mom used to have this saying she'd observe, you know, primarily people on TV, but every once in a while, maybe somebody out at the stores or at a party or something, she'd have this saying, ah, ya se le subió la cabeza, right? Some people, they get a little bit of good luck, good fortune in life, and it gets goes to their head. And uh, she would always tell us, don't be like that, right? Good stuff is going to happen. You're going to work hard. You're going to earn stuff. But, you know, that doesn't make you better than anybody else. And she was always quick, you know, to, to pull my ear, my brother's ear, even my dad's ear, <laughs> my sister's ear, uh, if she saw any sign of, uh, you know, things getting to our heads. So she made it a point to make sure that humility was instilled in us. And, you know, we lost my mom a couple of years ago, but there's plenty of people around me who will continue to do the same, starting with my wife, you know, my dad, my sister, my brother. We we have a good way of keeping each other humbled and, and, uh, and grounded. Yeah, that, that, that's important. You know, I'm still the same guy you, you met uh, 20 some odd years ago. Maybe not the same, same person because I'm happily married and, and a father now of three uh, young gentlemen. We're trying to raise three gentlemen, not, not trying to raise three boys. There's a difference. Instead of being out and about as a young guy from the Valley, now uh, enjoy cooking for the family, trying to catch the Dodgers on TV during the season, whenever we can, you know, just the, the simple things, keeping it real. If there's one other thing I'd add to my mom's advice, it's not just that, uh, hey, you know, even when we get a good uh, break in life, we're not better than anybody else. We're not less than anybody else either, right? We're equals. Uh, equals in, in voting rights, equals as uh, United States citizens in this country. I'm an equal member of the United States Senate. There's uh, some of my colleagues that have been here for 40 plus years. I might be here for four weeks, but we each got an equal vote. And so I'm going to go to bat just like anybody else on the issues that uh, I am passionate about. So how's that for for, for a taste of what goes through my uh, my head every day? Just, you know, Rob, we've known each other for a long time. I'll continue to say this, hope uh, to continue to make you proud, make the Labor Fed proud, make California proud, make our family and our community proud. No, you definitely do that. And I'll... I sent you a text um, the day you were sworn in. I took a picture of the the TV, uh, kind of cropped it and did a little, you know, uh, amateur editing and then sent it to you with the message. 
and it, it was extremely proud. Those little breakfasts that we've had for years at La Carreta down in East L.A., uh, you know, Mike uh, Garcia and I saw something in you, and we weren't shy to tell you. And uh, I'm very, I'm very, very proud of you. And you make uh, people of color, just not Latinos, people of color. You know, you give us, in, you give our youth inspiration. They can aspire to be a unit U.S. senator one day. I just want to thank you for being on our program. It's been great. You know, my friend, we'll be talking. And uh, God bless you and stay safe out there. Can't wait for our next little uh, cafecito. That's right, Senator. And I'm about to shower you with one more compliment. So make sure your wife, you talk to your wife immediately after this so she can ground you. But, you know, Ron's point earlier, uh, that video of you accepting the nomination, really... I can't tell you, just friends, colleagues, young folks alike, uh, what that, watching that meant to a lot of us, folks of color, uh, your your family background, your history, and it moved us in, in, in many ways. So we appreciate you, and we appreciate you taking the time out of uh, a very busy week, uh, historic legislation announcement, uh, and time away from your family to be able to speak with us. Thanks, Hugo. Very, very much appreciated. And uh, yeah, again, the outpouring of, of messages after that uh, Zoom, you know, reminds me this is not just a, a tremendous opportunity to represent our state in the U.S. Senate, but a tremendous responsibility, especially for all the work, working families out there. The uh, That's a lot on my shoulders, but, you know, I'll, I'll continue to do my best, continue to do my best. A union town, all down the line. This is a union town, a union town, all down the line. This is a union town. Hey, this is President Ron Herrera, thanking you and my co-host, Brother Hugo Romero, for joining us on this episode of Welcome to Union Town. (laughs) 